apply your truth to our hearts, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you could take your Bibles and go with me to the Gospel of Luke. We are in Luke chapter 9 this morning, Luke chapter 9. Luke 9 is where we will be in our Bibles this morning. Continuing on our verse-by-verse study through this wonderful gospel. And by the way, if you're just joining us this morning, uh, you're welcome to go back onto the website and listen to past sermons, cloverleafbaptist.net, and just navigate over to the sermons tab. You go back and listen to the other sermons in this series. Hopefully they're a help to you. By the way, for those of you who are watching online, I know there are some watching online today, give us a like, a share, a comment on there, and help get word out about the, the messages we're speaking it today. So Luke chapter 9 is where we are. We'll be looking at verses 10 to 17. Follow along as I read our text this morning. Luke chapter 9, picking up in verse number 10. And the apostles, when they were returned, told him all that they had done. Remember, they went off on that short-term missions trip. That's what we saw last week. They've now come back. And he took them and went aside privately into a desert place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. And the people, when they knew it, followed him. And he received them and spake unto them of the kingdom of God and healed them that had need of healing. And when the day began to wear away, he came to the twelve, or or, sorry, then came the twelve and said unto him, Send the multitude away that they may go into the towns and country round about and lodge and get victuals, that is food, for we are here in a desert place. And he said unto them, Give ye them to eat. And they said, We have no more than but five loaves and two fish, except we should go and buy meat for all this people, for they were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Make them sit down by fifties in a company. And they did so and made them all sit down. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and brake and gave to to the disciples to set before the multitude. And they did eat and were all filled. And there was taken up of fragments that remained to them, twelve baskets. Well, it really is hard to believe that we are already going back to school this week. It just amazes me how fast the summer has gone by. Ryan mentioned that earlier. But here we are, already back to school, which means for students going back to classrooms, teachers preparing lessons, and all of the joys of homework, right? Remember that? That's almost like, ah, don't use that. I hated homework, right? Everybody, it's it's awful. You're like, isn't it bad enough to have school at school? Now I have to bring school home with me? Unless you were like me, homeschooled, all of... School is at home and homework and school all kind of run together into just this torturous mess. No, actually, no, I really liked it. It was, it was great. Uh, but learning new things and listening to lectures, I was the weird kid that when, when school started, I got excited because I love to learn stuff. I'm a nerd. Okay? I don't, I'm not afraid to admit it. I'm a nerd. I love to read. I love to learn. And I, I'm a stool. Just love learning. But have you ever wondered why there are homeworks that get assigned, why there are take-home projects that are given? Why it is that there are reviews that happen in class, and there's repetition and going over stuff, and you've got to do all of those drills, right, like really get your math down or review your history. Why is that? Here's the reason. I know this is going to be really profound. We don't learn stuff the first time. Can you believe it, right? Very, very few of us remember stuff just hearing it the first time. We need to hear it over and over and over again, which is why, by the way, we come back to church every week. You're like, hey, I know the story about the feeding of the 5,000, but we need to be reminded of what this teaches us. We need to be reminded of the gospel every week because, as Martin Luther told us, 
we forget the gospel every week, right? We need these, these constant reminders, these constant reviews, these constant lessons. In this section of Luke's gospel, really most of Luke 9, Jesus is now coming into a very laser focus on, a, on his ministry to the 12 apostles. He picks these guys out several chapters back. They've been hanging out with Jesus, seeing him as he ministers to the multitude. But in this chapter, he really begins to pour into them in a specific way. We noted in our text here, notice as he takes them aside, he took them, took them aside privately into a desert place. He's, he's just getting alone with these 12 men. In the next passage in, in verses 18 to 20, he's going to get alone with the disciples again and ask them, who do you say that I am? And they're going to confess, you're the Christ of God. This is all about equipping them and preparing them for the ministry that they're going to have after the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. Listen, in just, uh, uh, just over a year from this point in, in the gospel, Jesus will be ascended to heaven and these guys will be on their own. The training wheels will be taken off of the bicycle, so to speak, and they will be going into the world telling people about Jesus. So this is a really crucial section in, in Luke's gospel. As Jesus begins to take the veil back and saying, guys, this is really what my mission is. What's going to happen is they're going to come to the conclusion in next week's message that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus is going to begin giving them more revelation about his mission. He's like, guys, you're right, I'm the Messiah, but you need to know something. I'm going to, I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. It's going to be a time of instruction and a time of revelation. So those are really the two threads that weave through Luke 9. Jesus equipping and teaching the 12. And Jesus also revealing to them his mission and the kind of discipleship that they will have. That's what this is about. So as we approach the, the feeding of the 5,000, I think we need to look at it through those two lenses. One of them is going to be, we want to be asking this question, what does this show us about Jesus? How does this reveal the character, the nature of Jesus? And the other lens we want to be looking through, the other question we need to be asking is, what was this designed to teach the disciples? As we read this, it's almost like the multitude are like extras on the set. Do you notice the multitude don't really do much? They just kind of show up and they're there. And then Jesus does the miracle. And it's all about the disciples asking and Jesus coming back at them. This was basically uh, about teaching the disciples something very, very important about the provision of Jesus Christ, about the power of Jesus Christ, about the compassion of Jesus Christ. So it's revealing, hey, this is who I am, and there's lessons you need to learn from that. That's what this is about. Uh, so we don't want to focus on the multitude so much today as we want to focus on Jesus and what he's teaching the disciples, what he's reveal, revealing to them about himself and about the mission that they would have. So notice how this is bracketed back in verse 9, before the section we read. Herod said, John, have I beheaded? But who is this? So Herod's heard reports about Jesus. He asks, who is this? Then look on the other side of it. Verse 18, and it came to pass when he was praying alone, his disciples were with him, and he asked them, saying, Whom say the people that I am? So fundamental to, the, to this section is understanding the identity of Jesus. The fact that it's bracketed with who am I on either side shows us that this is part of the answer. So let's just dive in. We're thinking about school going back this week, Jesus teaching the disciples. Here's why I want to frame the message today. Four lessons that, that Jesus is teaching the disciples in this. Not just four random lessons for life, not like, hey, here's sort of rules for living and just go out and do these things or how to make friends and influence people. But the, the idea here are lessons about who Jesus is. So let's, let's dive in. Here is the first lesson. The, le the lesson here is the lesson of patient compassion. And specifically, the patient compassion of Jesus, revealing this to the disciples and teaching them, this is what you all need to be like. 
So look at verse 10. We're seeing something about the heart and the compassion of Jesus here. And the apostles, when they were returned, told him all that they had done. So they've gone off on that short-term missions trip. We saw that last week. Now they have come back, and they have regathered. They've come back to where Jesus is at, and they are now recounting to him everything they did, everything they said. Uh, again, short-term thing. It was, a, it was a training wheels kind of missions trip. By the way, when they went out, they were simply called the Twelve. They're just the Twelve. They're just disciples of Jesus. They come back now. They're apostles. They've kind of earned their trident, so to speak. You know, with the Navy SEALs, they earned their trident. They've earned their badge. They've earned their wings. They've come back with, they've done this. They've gone out representing Jesus, and now they're come back, they come back, and they're called apostles, these envoys, these representatives of Jesus. I think this would have been a joyful meeting. They've gone out, they've preached, they have healed, they've cast out demons, and they're coming back like, Jesus, we, we, we got to do these things, and here's how people responded, and we stayed in these homes, and here's how, we, how you provided through these individuals. It's just amazing. I bet this was a joyful meeting. By the way, there is a pattern here. When you read the book of Acts, Paul goes out on his missions trip, and then he comes back to the church at Antioch, and he tells them everything that God did through him. You see, when God does a great work, he intends for it to be talked about, Right? Uh, that is, by the way, one of the reasons we have a Wednesday night prayer meeting. We have a time where we share praises. If you've got something that God has done in your life and that you're thankful for, that he has taught you through his word, share it with God's people. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Uh, even Sunday nights, we have a time to discuss our Bible reading and be like, hey, what are we learning? What questions are coming up? That's a time for us as a church family to share. So don't, don't hoard blessings to yourself. Share them with other people so they can rejoice with you. And they can delight in God with you. Just a little aside there. So verse 10 continues, and he took them and went aside privately into a desert place. Uh, The literal rendering here in the uh, original text, they went aside privately into the city city called Bethsaida. Um, We know it is a desert place belonging to the city because verse 12 tells us it's a desert place. Luke's giving us the name of the nearest known town to where they're at. So they go out into the middle of nowhere. Nearest town is this village called Bethsaida. This is a little sleepy fishing village on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, real actual place. You can go there today. You can go to Bethsaida, house of fish, fishing village. That's literally what it means. Beth means house. Bethsaida, house of fish. So they go to this this region around this little uh, fishing village north of the Sea of Galilee. This is where the Jordan River enters the Sea of Galilee, then it comes out the other end of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, A beautiful location. Mark tells us that the grass was green. It is the springtime. John tells us it was around Passover. Uh, So when you read desert place, don't think Sahara Desert with dust blowing everywhere, but picture remote area, green hills, beautiful lake. It is a serene setting. Why is Jesus doing this? He's taking them aside to rest. That's actually said explicitly in the other gospel accounts here. These guys have gone out preaching and casting out demons, and it has been go, 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 and Jesus recognizes the need they have for physical rest. We're talking about this first lesson, this this lesson of patient compassion. Jesus has compassion for his disciples. He doesn't view them as just pawns to run into the ground doing ministry. He sends them out on a preaching tour, and he says, guys, let's come aside, let's rest. This is like a retreat. Uh, they went aside, the, the, the Greek word there is a word that refers to a retreat. They're just pulling away from the crowds, pulling away from ministry for a brief respite, a time of rest. Doesn't that show you something about the heart of our Savior? He cares about the physical exhaustion of his servants. He cares about those of you who are feeling exhausted. By the way, anyone here feeling tired today? 
Okay, both hands are up, right? Okay, you're feeling tired from what you've been going through. Maybe you're just coming out on the other side of a sickness and you're here at church today. By the way, thanks for, thanks for being here. You're exhausted from being faithful in the ministry God has called you to. You say, well, I'm not a pastor. I don't have a ministry. If you're a parent, that's a ministry. If you're an employee, uh, employer or an employee, that is a ministry. That is serving Jesus in your job, in your home, and it's exhausting stuff. You say, I'm a mom here this morning, I'm exhausted. Or, man, I've been just busy helping people all week, I'm exhausted. You know, Jesus cares about the physical exhaustion that you feel. In fact, God in his wisdom in the Old Testament gave his people one day out of seven to rest. Uh, I think we make a terrible mistake when we fill every waking moment with stuff. Right, where it's like, hey, well, I'm not working today, but I'm going to do these 18 different things and just cram every waking moment, and I'm never going to let myself just rest. I saw a, uh, a tweet the other day, or I think it was a Facebook post. Um, great source for truth. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but it, this one I felt was accurate. This guy says, have you ever noticed that you get all of your creative ideas when you're in the shower? You're sitting there and you're like, ah, solution, light bulb. Mom. He says, why is that? He says, the shower is one of the few places that you still let yourself get bored. Right? Where you don't have a TV and noise and music to where your brain can just go and stuff can. Rest is good. Right? It's a time for us to recharge Jesus cares. Here's my point. It's not that just like go out and take some rest today. My point is to say that Jesus loves his people so much that he cares about you even in your physical exhaustion. That, he, that he, he's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. This, the same Jesus who was so exhausted that he fell asleep on the back of a boat in the middle of a storm knows what it is to be tired. Right? The same Jesus who sat down on the well in the middle of the day and, and the, where the, he meets the woman of Samaria... He knows what it is to be exhausted and to be working out in the heat. Don't think of Jesus as some sort of guy in a monastery somewhere staring dreamily off into space with a, a white robe. And, no, he, he's, a, he's real. He's human, though without sin. He feels compassion for that physical weakness. And so he calls that physical exhaustion. and calls the disciples away to rest. But verse 11, things don't go according to plan or so the disciples think. By the way, things always go according to plan for God. But for the disciples, they're like, great, we get some rest with Jesus. This is going to be awesome. But look what happens in verse 11. And the people, when they knew it, followed him. Uh, The other gospels tell us that Jesus and the disciples went by boat, kind of cut up across an angle, about a four-mile boat trip across the Sea of Galilee. The people would have taken an eight-mile run around the lake to, to get there about the same time. So when the people, the people, when they knew it, verse 11, they followed him. Can you imagine? They're just trying to get away, trying to get some rest, and this huge crowd is constantly chasing you down. It's just like, man, that, that just seems annoying. You're like, you, you, I think about moms with, with kids, and they're like, I'm just going to step away. I feel like my mom growing up, right? She would say, I'm taking a nap, and unless it is bleeding or on fire, don't wake me up, right? Um, can relate to this, just like there's always needs. That's how Jesus is. There's all these needs, people following, desperate people hounding him. But notice how he responds. We're talking about the patient compassion of Jesus for the disciples and their physical exhaustion and their physical needs. Notice verse 11. And the people, when they knew it, they followed him, and he received them. He welcomed them. That that word received is not just, all right, whatever. But this is the word, this is a hospitality word. He welcomed them. He welcomed them like a, like a host would welcome visitors into their home on Thanksgiving Day. He welcomed them like someone who was eager to see people and ready to meet their needs. In fact, Matthew and Mark explicitly say that Jesus saw the multitudes and he was moved with compassion. He sees their spiritual needs. 
He sees they're just sort of after curiosity. He sees their need for instruction, and he's moved by that. This is incredible. Word has spread quickly. People have emptied out of every village and every hamlet of Galilee to go see Jesus. We know that Herod at this point is kind of concerned about Jesus. Maybe they're afraid that Jesus is going to leave Galilee to get away from Herod. And so we've got to go, got to go see him before he leaves town. I don't know what motivates this. But what is incredible to me is Jesus does not lash out in frustration, but reaches out in compassion. That's amazing. I'll be honest, I'm not one who likes interruptions. I, I struggle with that, right? I'm, I'm working on a project, I'm trying to do something, and then there's a phone call, there's a knock on the office door, there's, there's a need that comes up. And it's easy for me to get frustrated when my plans get, frust- get interrupted, when people, you know, sort of intrude is how it feels. Jesus never viewed people as an intrusion. He's moved by compassion for even the interrupting multitude. By the way, what a contrast with the disciples. The disciples in verse 12 are going to be like, hey, get rid of the multitude. Jesus welcomes them. The disciples try to dismiss them. So here's Jesus. For him, the needs of the people trumped his own need, his own desire for rest and relaxation. What a portrait of compassion. See, I'm, I'm pretty compassionate, but I got my limits, right? I got my boundaries. Jesus was like, I'm going to sacrifice my day of retreat and rest to meet the needs of people. Now, notice what he does. He acts on that compassion. It's not just nice feelings. It's not just, I'll like a Facebook post or, or share a Twitter status, and I've done my job, and I can go back on with my life. But he actually invests. Look at verse, 12, verse 11. He received them, and then notice what he did. He spake unto them about the kingdom of God and healed them. Hey, the, the, the tense of those words, literally, he began and kept speaking to them, and he began and kept on healing them. This was an ongoing, it wasn't just, okay, quick little sermonette, I'll heal one or two people, now get out of here, but he did this all day. He was actively engaged in preaching and in healing. By the way, that was the same ministry the apostles had. They, in verse 6, went preaching and healing. In verse 1, he told them to go out and he gave them, gave them authority to, to heal. Verse 2, he, gave them, he sent them out to preach and to heal. So Jesus has the same ministry that his followers have. He's not aloof up in the corporate offices doing his own thing while the minions are on the ground actually doing the real work. He's engaged in it as well. So he preaches about the kingdom of God. What is that? What's the kingdom of God? It is the rule of God. Right? God rules over everything, but specifically the rule of God in the sphere of redemption. That people can be part of this kingdom, even though they've rebelled against the king. They can be forgiven. They can be brought in and brought under the authority and the rule of King Jesus. Here's the message of the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, the king is here, and you need to bow the knee in fealty and loyalty to him. It's the message of the gospel. It's the message that the king has come. But this king's not like any other king that we know of. Most kings come sort of in all the trappings of royalty, d- demanding that people you know, serve them. This king comes not to be served, but instead to serve and to give his life a ransom for the many. He dies on the cross. This king dies on the cross for his rebels, and he offers forgiveness and amnesty to all who will repent. Now, you've got to come as a rebel. You can't come being like, hey, Jesus, I'm a a good person. I'm really religious. Uh, I'm not a bad person. So just kind of help me out here. No, we come to him broken. We come to him needy. We come to him as sinners. And he welcomes all repentant sinners into his kingdom. That's what he spoke to them of. And what a different message than what they had heard their whole lives. He replaced, one writer put it this way, he replaced the legalists, you must 
with the Christians I trust. Instead of you must, I trust. Instead of do, it's done. And a startling message. And then, of course, he heals. So what does this teach the disciples? What does this show them about Jesus? They see on display once again the incredible compassion of Jesus. It's patient. He doesn't lash out in anger. He's patient with these demanding, needy people, healing and teaching them. He's patient and compassionate towards the exhausted disciples. This is a revelation of the heart of who Jesus is. The same one who was about to create food for 5,000 people cares about their needs. The same one who can walk on water and calm storms cares about the needs of people. I think this bridges the gap. These questions that bracket it, bracket the section. If you look down in verse 20, he said to the disciples, whom say ye that I am? And Peter answering said, the Christ of God. There was a light bulb, mo- light bulb moment where the disciples realized Jesus is the Messiah. He's the, the promised one. He's the son of God. And I think this account has a big, uh, it's a big piece of the puzzle. This is a big piece of evidence that leads them to that conclusion. The compassion of Jesus is evidence of his Messiahship, of his divinity. There's a lesson here for them as well. As they go out and minister, we're to be like Christ. We're called to be like him as we interact with people, to have patient compassion. Hey, how are you doing in the patient compassion department? Um, I'll confess, I'm not doing super great all the time. Uh, When Timothy wakes up at like 2 in the morning and he's crying and you don't know why, uh, man, I'm thankful for my wife and the way she cares for him. But I'll be honest, my compassion and patience sometimes is not what it should be when the interruption comes to the sleep? How do you do when the interruptions come, when people come with needs? Compassion, welcoming, hospitality, or can't be bothered right now. Jesus always made time for people. So that's the first lesson. The first lesson of patient compassion, revealing to the disciples, this is who Jesus is, revealing to us who Jesus is, revealing to us what we should be. But a second lesson, Second lesson is the lesson of human inability. Okay, so verse 12. When the day began to wear away, literally when the day began to decline. The day began to like the sun begins to go to bed kind of language. It's, it's idiomatic language, but the, 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 the sun's beginning to descend into the, the western sky. It's coming about dinner time, right? It's about 4.30, 5 o'clock in the afternoon. If this is around, uh, around Passover, sunset's going to be about 6 o'clock. So about 4.30, 5 o'clock, the shadows are beginning to lengthen. You can just picture the silhouette of Jesus being cast along the hillside. Uh, you can just picture the scene. Thousands of people, all of these things going on. The day began to wear away. The twelve came and said to Jesus, send the multitude away. Okay, get rid of all these people that they may go into the towns and country and lodge and get food. Because we're in a desert place, Jesus. The disciples make a demand on Jesus. But notice what this demand reveals about the disciples, what they need to learn. It reveals a complete lack of concern on one level. They're not thinking... Hey, Jesus, these people are really hungry, but it's more get rid of the people because they're kind of annoying and they're kind of trampling on our little thing that we have going here. They want the crowd to go into surrounding villages and the countryside to find lodging, to, to, find, to find food. That's what that old word, vittles, looks like victuals, vittles, refers to food. They can find food and lodging, place to stay. That tells us that the people weren't all local. They've come from a long way. They've come from a long distance to come and see and be with Jesus. And the disciples are just like, yeah, let's, whatever, get rid of them for the day. Here's the other thing. Notice that word sent, send them away. 
That's not a request. That's not a suggestion. They're trying to command Jesus. Think about how audacious that is. Jesus, let me give you some advice here. Let me give you a command. Totally out of place. He's God. We're the creatures. Right? He's the master, we're the learners, we're the disciples. This would be like the, you know, the little uh, five-year-old in, in, in kindergarten trying to instruct the teacher. It's just totally out of place, right? It's kind of ridiculous. So say, go, go find all the people. They, they don't have any concern for the multitude. What a contrast to Jesus. This demand reveals their lack of concern, but it also reveals their lack of confidence. Verse 13 goes on. But he said unto them, give ye them to eat. And they said, we have no more but five loaves and two fish, except we should go and buy food for all this people. There, there's no thought on their minds that Jesus, the one who has healed, they've seen him healing all day, by the way, the one who preaches divine truth, the one who calms storms, the one who casts out demons, the one who raises the dead, might be able to do a miracle that's in line with what God has done in the past. I mean, this is, there, there's actually precedent for the kind of thing that Jesus does here. No, it's easy to be like, man, the feeding of the 5,000, unlike anything, and it is different than anything else. But there's some events in the Old Testament that, that, that should have made them think, hey, God has done things in the past to miraculously provide food. Uh, one of those would be in, uh, in, in the Exodus, God provides manna for the people as they come out of Egypt, bread from heaven to feed them, miraculous provision. And he didn't do it just once. He didn't just do it twice. He did it six days a week for 40 years. Right? God has the ability to miraculously provide for his people. He is God the provider. There's another event. Um, this one's kind of interesting. Jump over with me to 2 Kings chapter 4. This is a really obscure little passage. Um, but the language here is so similar to the feeding of the 5,000. I think there is a direct allusion going on here of like back to this event. 2 Kings chapter 4. Okay, we've got the prophet Elisha. God's working great miracles through him, confirming his message through him. There is a famine that is going on in the land. So 2 Kings chapter 4, look at verse 42. This is way back in the Old Testament. This is back, you know, a thousand years before Christ, if not more. There came a man from Baal Shalisha, that's the name of a village, and brought the man of God, that's Elisha, Bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and full ears of corn. So notice we got loaves and something else. There's some similar language, by the way, the loaves Jesus had. We know they're barley loaves from one of the other gospel accounts. In the husk thereof, and he said, give unto the people that they may eat. Okay, give ye them to eat. You hear the similar language there to what, the, what Jesus says to the disciples? Give ye them to eat. Very similar language here. Give ye them to eat. Give to the people that they may eat. And a servitor said, what should I set before this? Uh, set this before in a hundred men. He said, give the people and they, that they may eat. For thus saith the Lord, they shall eat and shall, ha- shall leave thereof. They'll eat and have leftovers. And he set it before them and they did eat and left thereof according to the word of the Lord. Okay, almost an identical pattern to the feeding of the 5,000. You have a little bit of food, a whole lot of people, a statement, give them to eat. And then when they're done, there's leftovers and everybody has enough. There's a pattern here. Now, here's the difference. This one here has 20 loaves for 100 people. Jesus has five loaves for 5,000. So it's a far greater miracle that is wrought. Another account that that should have come to the disciples' mind is in Numbers chapter 11, another time that God miraculously provided quail for the people. Numbers chapter 11. Moses said, The people among whom I am are 600,000 footmen. 
And thou hast said, I will give them flesh that they may eat a whole month. So Moses is kind of doubting, right? God's like, I'm going to provide food for these people. Moses is like, uh, God, there's over a half million men here, plus women and children. Shall the flocks and herds be slain for them to suffice them? Like the disciples said, we could, we could go out in the villages and buy all the food. He said, there's not enough food here. Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to suffice them? Okay, Moses is having sort of a belief problem, a trust problem. He's like, God, I don't know if you really can do it. And the Lord said unto Moses, verse 23, Is the Lord's hand waxed short? Thou shalt see now whether my word shall come to pass unto thee or not. God's like, Moses, do you think that I'm strong enough to do this? So as we come back to Luke chapter 9, here's what I'm driving at. There's a lesson here of human inability. The disciples are like, Jesus, get rid of the people. Jesus is like, no, I want you to feed them. And the disciples respond by saying, we've only got five Loaves, okay, don't picture a loaf of wonder bread here, but picture sort of flat bread. These are pita bread kind of things. would be the closest analogy we would have to this. So five flat breads and, and two fish. I don't know what kind of fish they were, but some kind of fish from the lake perhaps. So that's all we got. We know from John's account, they didn't even bring this with them. They went out and they took this from a boy who happened to bring lunch. Everybody kind of dropped everything when they're like, hey, Jesus is coming, let's go and see him. Nobody thought to like bring lunch or bring dinner along with them. Except this one boy, you think maybe his mom was really on top of things, being like, before you leave, make sure you take lunch. One of the disciples have kind of tried to sort of go through the crowd and be like, who's got food here? Give us this food and we'll, we'll try to... So they've tried sort of plan A, which is solicit food from the crowd. But notice their plan B in verse 13. Unless we should go and buy food for all those people. Here's plan B. We go scatter out in all the villages and we take all the money we have and try and buy food. Now, in John's gospel, Philip... He's sort of the bean counter of the group. He's like, okay, even if we had 200 denarii, even if we had a year's worth of wages, $30,000, $40,000, there wouldn't be enough for people just to even have a little snack. So they're at the end of their abilities here. That's, that's the point. So Jesus is exposing the disciples' inability. He's showing them, okay, I want you to meet the needs of this people. There's 5,000 people, verse 14. There were about 5,000 men. That's the the Greek word referring specifically to men, males, plus women and children. So let's say there's 15,000, 20,000 people here. Jesus is like, I want you to feed these 20,000 people. And the disciples are like, let's see, do we have food? Okay, five loaves, two fish, that's not going to do it. Do we have money? We don't have enough money to go to buy all the food that would be in the area. Here's the point. This is something they don't have the ability to do. The crowd does not have the ability to to meet their own needs. The disciples don't have the ability to meet the the crowd's needs. Only Jesus has the ability to meet the crowd's needs. This should have conjured up a reminder of manna in the desert. This should have reminded them how God provided quail in the wilderness. This should have reminded them how God, through Elisha, took 20 barley loaves and fed hundreds of men. But they're not thinking on that level. They're just thinking about the need. Their eyes are just on the size of the crowd rather than on the size of Jesus. They don't realize that Jesus is a second Moses come to deliver his people who's going to come and bring about a new exodus and who's going to be the bread of heaven, John 6 tells us. They don't realize that he's a better Elisha providing for God's people. They don't realize that he is Jehovah Jireh. That's a name of God in the Old Testament that means the Lord will provide. It comes from Genesis 22 where God has Abraham offer Isaac. And at the last minute, God's like, here's a ram caught in the thickets where Abraham says the Lord will provide himself a lamb. And then God's like, here's a substitute. 
And one day the Lord would provide himself to be that lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They don't realize that Jesus is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. So Jesus' call in verse 13, give ye them to eat, the disciples respond by coming up with creative schemes. That wasn't the point. The point was not to be like, hey, let's see what you can do on your own. The point was to help them to realize that they could not do things on their own. See, a lot of people approach the Bible the way the disciples did. Go through the the Ten Commandments, for example, or the Sermon on the Mount. Like, I'm going to try really hard to keep this and earn my way to God. The point of those commands is not to say, earn your way to God. The point of those commands is to show you, you can't. You, you have, you, you're totally depraved and unable to do those things that would be pleasing before God to, to result in your own salvation. The only answer is going to come through Jesus. The, the, the point of those commands is to expose our inability and throw us on the ability of Christ. And that's what, this, what is going on here, Jesus exposing their inability. Now think about what this would mean for the disciples. They're about to go out and just over a year, and preach the gospel to every creature, make disciples of every nation. Would you not agree that's a, that is a tall order? Go out and win the world for Jesus. Go out and make disciples of every nation. Go win, get people to see their sin and, and see their brokenness and see that they can't do anything to save themselves and, and rely on a crucified Messiah who's risen from the dead. That's an outlandish message, right? That's, that's absurd to the natural mind. You're going to go and tell people that, and you're going to go all over the world and do it. Guess what? That's an impossible mission for us to do on our own. When we hear that, our our response should not primarily be, what kind of creative ideas can I come up with? But rather, the call is not to creative ideas, but to confident trust. If it's going to happen, it's going to be Jesus doing this through me. He's going to be doing it his way through his power. As you and I go on that mission through the world of telling people about Christ, that's what Jesus is preparing the disciples for, that's the mission that you and I have, you've got to understand this, beloved. You cannot save a single soul. You do not have the ability to reach down into someone's heart and give them spiritual life. You cannot coerce repentance. I'm going to just twist someone's arm and with just the right arguments get them to believe in Jesus. Now, we ought to be persuasive. We ought to lay the truth out. But at the end of the day, only God can change a heart. You cannot change your spouse. Even you're, you're, you're Christian, you're in, a, you're in your marriage. With your, you're, okay, I'm going to try really hard to change my spouse and make them do what I want them to do. You can't do that. Only God can change them. You cannot convert your child. You can't do it. Now, you can teach them the word of God. You can put the gospel before them. You can plead with them to repent and believe in Jesus. You can live the gospel out before them, but only God can do that. So why does Jesus ask them to give them an impossible command? Is to show them their inability to do this on their own. But I want to bring us into a third lesson. First lesson, his, his patient compassion. He puts up with the crowds. He meets the needs of the disciples. We get the lesson of human inability. Jesus gives the disciples a mission that they cannot fulfill on their own. With inadequate resources for an absurdly enormous crowd. You're like trying to feed an entire football stadium with five hot dogs. That's how ludicrous this is. But now we come to the third lesson. The lesson is that of miraculous divine provision. This is the, the lesson of divine power, the lesson of what Jesus does. Comes into where, where human inability is and displays his divine glory. That's the point here, to, to show the disciples lesson about your inability. But here's a revelation of the glory and the majesty of Jesus. So now we, we pick up in verse 14. 
And he said to his disciples, make them sit down by 50s. It's okay, get everyone to get into groups of 50. We're going to get people organized. Uh, God is a God of order. Uh, this is going to facilitate passing out the food. It's going to facilitate making this something that will be, will be done orderly and will be done efficiently. And they did so and made them all sit down. Don't overlook verse 15. It's easy to look at the disciples like we just didn't mean like these guys don't get it. But that did take faith, right? The food truck has not shown up. There's not like a, a local pita pit or Jerusalem cafe that everybody's going to go to. There's no Naaman's catering that's going to show up and provide for the, the, the crowd here. They're doing this on faith. Hey, listen, sometimes obedience will precede understanding. Right, one writer pointed out, obedience will precede understanding. They don't know how Jesus is going to meet this need. They know that he's powerful, and they trust him enough to be like, all right, we're going to look like complete idiots if this doesn't work. But we're going to do this anyway. We're going to get everyone organized into groups so Jesus can feed them, and we don't know how he's going to do it. We go along here now into verse 16. Here's the miracle itself. He took the five loaves and the two fishes. And looking up to heaven, he blessed, that is, he gave thanks for them, and break and gave to the disciples to set before the multitude. That, that word gave at the end of the verse, he kept on giving. So here's what's happening is Jesus has these five loaves, he breaks a piece off, and he breaks a piece off, and they're multiplied. We're not actually told how the miracle happens. Have you noticed that? The miracle is implied, it's not actually stated. All we know is there's five loaves, and there's 5,000 people, and Jesus keeps on breaking bread and fish and sending it out through the disciples. This is a display of divine power. So Jesus breaks the bread, and he keeps on breaking it and keeps on passing it out to the disciples. He's multiplying bread under his hands. This is a miracle of creation. right? This is not like, well, this, the, the dough was still rising, or, or one person was like, well, there's really a cave that Jesus had behind him where he had this big stash of bread and fish. That's, that's ludicrous, right? No, this is a, a miracle of creation. He is the God who smoked the universe into existence, and here he is, passing out bread that came from grain that never grew, passing out fish that never swam. All right, that's pretty awesome, right? This would, and there wouldn't, none of this would have been burnt or undercooked or like, man, this fish was a little too salty. It would have been perfect, right? Absolutely perfect meal that he's just creating and multiplying. That is power. That's the point here. There's a reason why this is the only miracle prior to the resurrection that's recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Shows up in all four Gospels because this grabbed the attention of the disciples. They're like, if you want to see who Jesus is, look at the feeding of the 5,000. If he can do that, then he's the creator. Listen, if any one of you could make something out of nothing this morning, I would have to step back and be like, you either have really divine power uh, or perhaps you're God. Right? None of us have the ability to make something out of nothing. Everything that we make comes from something else that God already made. Right? Like That's how stuff works. You're like, well, I, can, I built a house okay, out of two-by-fours that came from trees that God grew. Right? That's how it works for us. Jesus is making this out of nothing. So he, he, he does this miraculous provision. He does it through divine power, but I don't want you to miss this. Look at the end of verse 16. He gave it to the disciples who then gave it to the people. As Jesus does miraculous provision to meet the needs of the multitude, as he meets the needs of the world through the gospel, he uses means. You know, you realize this, Jesus could have just been like, Father, and he looks up to heaven, he prays to the Father, he's, by the way, reminder, Jesus does everything in perfect harmony with his Father. He's not off as just sort of freelancing, doing his own thing. 
He's not some renegade member of the Trinity, but he does everything in perfect harmony with the Father and with the Spirit. He, he looks up to heaven, he breaks the bread, he gives thanks for what, what he's about to do. But he could have just snapped his fingers and everybody would have had a belly full of food. Right? He could have just sort of bypassed the whole passing the food out and everybody having a meal. He could have done it that way. He's God, he can do what he wants. But notice how he does this. He uses the disciples as the means between his divine power and the needs of the multitude. What, what bridges the gap between the power of God and the needs of the world are the disciples passing out the food. You and I passing out the gospel. God uses people. Right? That's, that's really encouraging. That's really amazing because the disciples obviously aren't the, you know, the most spiritually intuitive group of people here. Right? They didn't anticipate this. They're sort of doubting that it's going to happen. Uh, Jesus has to do this a second time before they really get it. There's a feeding of the 4,000 that happens later. He doesn't use them because they're the brightest or because they're the best or because they're the smartest. He uses them because he chooses to use them. And he uses you and me not because we're creative or smart or brilliant or persuasive, but because he chooses to use people like me. He chooses to use instruments and work through us. So we get divine power mediated through human means. Notice what the disciples are doing. They're not making the meal, they're just delivering the meal. They're not the chef, but they're the waiters. That's basically all I am, guys. You're like, oh man, how do you come up with all of this stuff that you preach every week? It's just the Bible, right? The, the chef has already prepared the meal. I just deliver it. Just put it on the plate and bring it every week. And that's what you and I do week in and week out. It's not your job to be like, man, how do I come up with the gospel? Well, the gospel's already been designed. It's the message of God is holy and perfect. Man is sinful and rebellious. Christ, who is God in the flesh, lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death, rose again from the dead, and you must repent and believe, right? That's the message. It's not going to change. We just deliver it. We just deliver the meal. It's not our job to try to make the message, the, the, the meal more palatable. It's ours to simply deliver the meal that's already been prepared and, by the way, already paid for. Right? We're not going to be like, um, by the way, here's take the credit card back to pay for this. No, it's been paid in full. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. It's not a meal that we pay for, but it's one that he paid for. Don't forget that God works through means. So you're praying, right? You're like, God, would you please meet this need? And then God's like, hey, here's a, here, here's a doctor to help you with your illness. No, I want God to meet the need. Do you realize God might have sent the doctor to be the means for answering your prayer? You say, God, I want my, my, my neighbor to, to become a Christian, or I want my family member to get saved. Please save them. Please save them. And God's like, do you not realize that you might be the means that I wanted to use to make that happen? God works through people. He works through means. This is true with doctors and preachers. This is true that God uses books and gospel tracts and conversations and things that you share on Facebook. He uses those things for his purpose. No, they're not ultimate. God's working is ultimate, but he works through people. This is a lesson of divine provision. This is a lesson of how God meets the needs of the world. This shows us something about the heart of Jesus. He's a savior who provides Primarily, not just our physical needs, but primarily our spiritual needs through his death on the cross. He's provided all that's necessary to take away our sin. We pray, give us this day our daily bread. Everything that you have is a gift from God. You realize that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father, according to James 1 and verse 17. So the, the vehicle you drove to church today was provided to you by God. The house that you live 
live in, the bed you slept in last night, the cup of coffee you drank this morning, the meal that you're going to have for lunch in just a little while, the, the, the thing you're going to do this afternoon, the, the TV you're going to watch, the boat that you're going to go out on, the fishing line, the, all of those things are gifts from God. Says, well, I worked for them. Yes, that's the means God uses to provide for you. I think this should, at the very least, call us to gratitude. God, through his divine power, through human means, human means meets our needs. So this is fascinating. Jesus tells them in verse 13, give ye them to eat, and then he gives them all the resources to help them actually fulfill that command. The disciples will be the one to deliver the meal and actually provide and meet the needs of the people. But a final lesson, the lesson of divine satisfaction. So we see the, the, the lesson of his compassion. We see the lesson of our inability. We see the lesson of his provision. But here's this final lesson, the lesson of divine satisfaction. Look at verse 17. And they did eat, and were all filled. And there was taken up of fragments that remained to them twelve baskets. So the entire multitude eats, and they are filled to satisfaction. And then there's leftovers. All right, twelve big baskets of leftovers. This is not Jesus gave everybody, you know, a little one of those little napkins with a couple of, you know, like fish sticks and some animal crackers. No, this isn't one of those like nursery snacks, right? No, th- this is like Thanksgiving dinner kind of stuffed and full, and you can't eat, any- eat anymore, and you need to take a nap afterwards kind of full. His provision, he satisfies through his provision. I can just imagine the meal, just these little groups of people laughing and like, this is amazing. Jesus provides this amazing meal all in their little groups on the hillside of Bethsaida. This is a preview of the coming feast in the kingdom of God. Uh, One day, we're going to gather at the marriage supper of the Lamb and enjoy this feast full of joy and satisfaction with Jesus, and it's going to last for all eternity. It's like Thanksgiving meal kind of joy that never, ever, ever ends. This is a harbinger of this. This is to say the kingdom's been inaugurated, and one day it's going to be consummated. It's going to be brought in, and there's going to be this joy that we're going to have as his people feasting around the table of the king. That word that's translated there as filled... The word there means to fill with food, to feed, to experience inward satisfaction in something, to be satisfied, to eat until you want no more. Feed me till I want no more, we sang earlier. This was not like they'd gone grazing at Costco on a Sunday afternoon. I don't even think they do that anymore. But it's not the little, you get little tasties around Costco. No, this is a big feast. He provided all they needed and then some. He's a God who can satisfy a multitude in the middle of a desert. That's how gracious and satisfying He is. Now, did you notice something in verse 16? There's some language that sounds really familiar. He took the bread. He broke the bread. He blessed the bread. He gave the bread out. What does that sound like? It sounds like the Last Supper, right? That language is extremely similar to what Jesus said on the night of his betrayal at the Last Supper. And I think later on, the disciples looked back at this and were like, okay, there's the cross, and then there's the Last Supper. That's a picture of the cross, the broken bread, the juice picturing what Jesus would do suffering for us. And then they also thought back, the feeding of the 5,000 is kind of like the Last Supper. So you've got the Last Supper that points to the cross. You've got the feeding of the 5,000 that points to the Last Supper that points to the cross. To say this, this event, this event points to the cross. On what basis does Jesus provide? He ultimately provides every good and gracious gift he gives on the basis of his shed blood on the cross. Romans 8 and verse 32 tells us that if God spared not his own son... How shall he not also with him freely give us all things? The death of Jesus purchased every good thing that you experience. It's not just heaven. It's not just 
I don't have to go to hell now, but it is also the Holy Spirit. It is also community with God's people. It is also spiritual gifts. It is also joy that you and I can have as we go through trials. And it's also his provision every single day. The death of Jesus is enough to provide and to cover for every sin. You might be here this morning being like, but I have really blown it. And I have sinned in a horrible way. The death of Jesus is enough to satisfy the wrath of a holy God and to cover your sin and to take it away forever. No matter your sin, no matter your rebellion, no matter your darkness, Jesus is enough. He's the bread of life that we must receive by faith. And Jesus and only Jesus can save your soul and satisfy your soul for all eternity. And listen, just as the multitude do not pay for the meal, so you and I do not pay for our salvation. It's a gift. But one last thing to note here in verse 17. There were leftovers. There was excess. There was more than enough that remained 12 baskets. I don't think little lunch basket, the word there is kafanos. We get the word coffin from. This was the basket that the Roman soldiers would use to carry their supplies in. Almost like a, a backpack kind of thing. This is more than just a little lunch box, but this is like ample sufficiency. There's 12 of them for the 12 apostles. It's almost that like Jesus is saying, hey, I provide for the multitudes. I'm also going to provide for you. There's going to be leftovers. There's going to be excessiveness in this William Hendrickson says this here portrays the master's regal lavishness, his uncalculating generosity. I like that. Our father is not stingy. He's not sitting there being like, well, no, I don't want to meet the need. No, no, no. He's eager to satisfy the deepest longings of your soul with nothing more than himself. That's how awesome he is, that he is the bread of life. He is the water of life. He is the one who can satisfy the deepest needs and the deepest desires of your soul. Father, we thank you for this text and what it shows us about your son.